This is Sam Swartz and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Close to 900 freshmen and transfer students at the UW-Madison will have their tuition and fees paid for this year by the Bucky's Tuition Promise Program. The program, which is in its fourth year, covers the cost of attending the university for students from households in Wisconsin that make less than $60,000 per year, according to Wisconsin Public Radio. The program, which is privately funded, is currently being expanded with public funds to include other universities in the Wisconsin system and will hopefully be available in the fall of next year. The program has paid for almost 5,000 students' tuition over the last four years and, once expanded, will approximately 8,000 Wisconsin students per year. The Dane County Medical Examiner's Office identified the victim of a fatal shooting off of John Nolan Drive on Tuesday after a traffic argument turned violent. The shooting was the eighth homicide in Madison this year, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. If no more homicides occur this year, it will mark a slight reduction in the city's homicides from 2020 and 2021. District 12 Auditor Syed Abbas announced last week that he is resigning from the city's Common Council. Abbas emphasized his desire to spend more time with his family and celebrated the victories he was able to achieve while on the Common Council, including establishing a 14-acre protected wetland at Hartmeyer. Over recent years, the city's Common Council has struggled to retain alders, with several resigning in the past two years. Alder Abbas's last day on the council will be Wednesday. Green Cab, Madison's all-electric taxi service, has stopped all operations and seems poised to go out of business. The service, which started in 2010, was previously praised by politicians for its vehicle fleet that consisted entirely of hybrid vehicles. Back in 2019, the company switched to all-electrics. But the company gave up their taxi license in March, focusing on non-emergency medical transportation. But as of Wednesday last week, the company has stopped all rides. With its closure, Madison now has only two operating taxi companies, which may struggle to meet the increase in demand in the aftermath of Green Cab's closure, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Two would-be ice fishers were rescued today by the Madison Fire Department after they attempted to fish on Cherokee Lake. According to the incident report, the fishers made it 150 feet off the shore before they fell through the thin ice. Uh, So note, it is too early in the year for ice fishing, and people who want to fish on the city's lakes should wait for the go-ahead from the city before venturing out onto the ice. Yesterday was the last day to visit the Wisconsin Historical Museum, which closed today for a new renovation project. The renovations are expected to last into 2026, and the museum's exhibits are likely to to stay closed until that time, according to Channel 3000 News. In the meantime, the Wisconsin Historical Society is planning on offering special exhibits in the state capitol building and on having touring and on having touring installations throughout the state. The museum store will remain open throughout the end of the year for anyone who wants to make a last-minute purchase. And now, on to today's top stories. The nurses at UW Health have been fighting for a union since 2019, saying that even before the pandemic, they were facing understaffing and long hours at the hospitals. Now, a decision by the state's Employment Relations Commission is continuing the ongoing battle over whether the hospital could choose to voluntarily recognize a nurses' union. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. 
The nurses at UW Health previously had a union, but after Act 10 was passed in 2011, the UW Hospital and Clinics Authority, or UWHCA, said that they were unable to recognize a union under any circumstances. Days ahead of a strike in September, both SEIU, the union looking to represent the nurses, and UW Health came to a decision to ask the state's Employment Relations Commission to rule on whether or not the hospital can voluntarily recognize the union. Why push for a union? Kate Walton, a registered nurse at UW Health, says that since the union dissolved, they've seen a decrease in working conditions. You know, my colleagues and I have really noticed a change. Even since I started in 2016, I've noticed a change in both the ability of nurses to speak up on behalf of our patients and in things like staffing ratios and the ability to provide safe care for our patients. Last Friday, the commission issued their ruling saying that UW Health does not have to recognize the nurses' union. The ruling says that the UWHCA is not technically the employer of UW Health nurses under state law, meaning that they have no obligation to recognize a union. Kate Walton says that they are not surprised by the ruling. I don't think it really changes anything. We have a meet and discuss process with the hospital that is in place. Um, We have a union. We have members, you know, we've always had a union, but uh, now we have a union on paper as well as in truth, and we have a process to meet with the hospital and some accountability built into that process, and have already started making some changes. As part of the September agreement, UW Health agreed to begin holding open meetings with the nurses to address ongoing issues. Walton says that, although these meetings are still in their early stages, they have been able to hold productive meetings to address the issues facing the nurses. However, the commission did not issue a ruling as to whether the hospital is able to voluntarily recognize the union. And the fact that the hospital authority could recognize a union, if it wanted to, has been the main contention of organizers these last three years. Voluntary recognition has been at the heart of the issue since the nurses reignited their unionization efforts in 2019. Multiple legal memos, including one by the state's nonpartisan legislative council, who advises policymakers on legal and policy research, and by the state's attorney general, Josh Call, have stated that Act 10 only removed the obligation to recognize a union and that they are legally allowed to do so voluntarily. UW Health told WORT today that the decision is an important first step in deciding whether or not they can voluntarily recognize a union, and that they are petitioning the state Supreme Court to issue a final decision on the matter. But the nurses are looking at taking the case a different route, and instead are working to petition the National Labor Relations Board to hold a unionization election. In a statement Friday, SEIU said that the ruling is simply the first step in a long process of unionization and that they will continue their efforts to be recognized, either through a court decision, an NLRB decision, or through voluntary recognition. Ultimately, Walton says that the nurse's future looks bright. At the end of the day, we've got some hard-earned victories here that we've gotten along the way by standing together as a union. And we're going to continue to stand together and fight for our patients and to make UW Hospital the best hospital in the state. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. It's been almost two years since Madison residents voted for their alders, which means that elections for the city's common council are on the horizon. WORT's Antonio Barreras Lozano tells us more about what you need to know about the election process. 
It is almost the end of the year, and that means that candidates for Madison's Common Council are preparing to run next spring. Because all Common Council positions work on a two-year term, that means that all 20 seats are up for election. Each of these seats corresponds to one of Madison's 20 districts that are represented by elders in the Common Council. The elders work with other city officials to make sure that the voices of the residents they represent are heard. Of the current alders, six have confirmed that they will not be running, eight have filed candidacy documents, and six have not made any announcements. Because alders play an important part in helping shape the city, common council elections are a way that Madison residents can get involved in local politics. Alder Juliana Bennett says that running for office is one of the many ways to get involved. And other options include supporting local NGOs, joining a city committee, or working on a local official's campaign. Here's why she decided to run as an alder two years ago. Local government is one of the best ways you can give back to your community, get involved with local government. It's one of the most rewarding things you can do where you get to see the positive impact the decisions you are making um, have on the community. So if you're thinking about running or know someone who might be interested, we're going to do a rundown of all you need to know about preparing for the Common Council elections. Although the elections are not until spring next year, there is still some work that needs to happen for candidates to run. So it is better to start getting involved sooner rather than later. This is because Madison requires candidates interested in running to fill out four documents by January 3rd. And to understand what those documents are, here is Riley Woolman. Riley is an election supervisor at the Wisconsin Election Commission. Um, so what they're going to be required to complete um, by state statute is they do have to fill out a campaign registration statement. Um, this is something that is just basically um, showing their campaign and their campaign committee. Um, this is where folks will be appointing somebody to be their treasurer. Um, even if folks don't plan on spending or raising any funds, they still should um, complete the campaign registration statement. The second document is a declaration of candidacy. This document includes the candidate's name, residential address, and the office they are running for. In this case, it will be the alder position. Filing the document is not enough, however, as it has to be notarized. Here is Riley explaining why. And then you do need to get that document notarized because you are swearing that, you know, you're eligible to take the office, that you're a resident of the municipality and eligible to take the office of mayor or alder or whatever position they're running for. The third document candidates need to fill out is a statement of interest. This form helps the city of Madison ensure that candidates do not have any conflicts of interest that could prevent them from doing their job as an alder. Lastly, candidates have to submit and circulate nomination papers. Through this form, candidates collect the signatures and addresses of people in their district. Candidates need to collect a minimum of 20 signatures from people living in the district they are running in. However, candidates are recommended to collect the maximum number of signatures, in this case 40, in case some of them are challenged or are considered invalid. Riley also says it's important to keep in mind that there is a limited window of time when these signatures need to be collected. Um, the important thing to note with these 
nomination papers is that they can they have a very specific window in which they can be gathered. So starting December 1st, these candidates can go out and get those signatures. Um, and ultimately, those are going to be due to the municipal clerk um, no later than 5 p.m. on Tuesday, January 3rd. Um, so they have a little over a month to go out and get those signatures and then file them with the filing officer. And if you have any questions about the election process, Riley really encourages people to reach out. You know, if, if they really do have questions, I would just always encourage them to reach out. Um, again, to our office or for folks running the City of Madison, the City of Madison Municipal Clerk's Office, um, or any clerk's office in the state. They're going to be happy to be a good resource and provide the necessary information on kind of how you can file all of the documents needed in order to be placed on the ballot. If more than two candidates for the same race successfully complete all these steps, then they'll face off during a primary in February. The two top finishers there will move on to the spring election on April 4th, when all races, even those with just one candidate, will appear on the ballot. There will also be other nonpartisan offices on that April ballot, including an important race that could decide the ideological majority for the state Supreme Court. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Antonio Barreras Lozano. The past weekend saw some beautiful weather, but don't worry, the cold winds are not leaving us for long. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis breaks it all down in this week's weather forecast. The 50-degree weather that we felt over the weekend sure felt like summer again. Those higher temperatures will continue for the next few days before dropping back down again. Current temperatures are sitting at right around 40 degrees with a 40% cloud cover and wind speeds coming from south-southeast at 10 miles per hour. But due to the lack of sunlight, cloud cover, and the wind speeds, it is feeling around 7 degrees colder. Real field temperatures reading just 33 degrees. Temperatures are only going to drop a few degrees overnight before warming back up tomorrow. Days are continuing to get shorter and shorter. Our sun setting as early as 4.24 p.m. and rising at 7.07 a.m. Tomorrow is looking to be a nice day as well, with the highs being in the lower 50s, with continued high wind speeds between 10 and 20 miles per hour coming from the south-southeast. We will have a high chance for rainfall tomorrow, around 57% in the Madison area. Although temperatures aren't super high, we all know the Midwest still gets super high humidity regardless of the low temperatures. Humidity will be all the way at 85% tomorrow. Tomorrow will be considerably cloudy with a low UV index of 1. Into Tuesday night, temperatures are dropping very low, all the way down to 23 degrees. Showers and cloudiness will continue into the evening, and wind speeds will steadily be at 18 miles per hour with even higher wind gusts. Temperatures into Wednesday aren't looking to pick up too much from Tuesday night. The high for Wednesday looking to be in the upper 20s. Wednesday is looking to be fairly cloudy with high wind speeds between 15 and 25 miles per hour, which is going to make Wednesday feel much chillier than the actual temperatures outside. Wednesday night will be dropping down into the teens with those continued high wind speeds. Thursday is looking to warm up slightly into the 30s, but again, will feel cooler due to the wind speeds. Sunshine and clouds will be intervaling, so stay in the sun while you can. Friday is looking to warm up again to the high 40s, with wind speeds continuing to pick up consecutively all the way to 20 miles per hour during the day into the overnight hours, and more cloud coverage is to be expected into the evening. With your WORT weather report here in Madison, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. One of the city's largest projects, bus rapid transit, is set to go into effect next year, making bus service for most Madison residents faster and easier. 
But one concern with BRT came out of the decreased number of bus stops around the city, with some folks concerned that by having to walk farther to get to a bus stop, disabled folks will have fewer transportation options. That's where Madison Paratransit comes in, and earlier today, the city's finance committee debated whether or not to expand the service and add a new provider into the fleet. To learn more about paratransit and what the service will look like under BRT, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Mike Roosh with the city's metro department before that finance committee meeting today. So, Mick, now some people may not be super familiar with what paratransit is. So let, let's start off there. Tell me a little bit about paratransit. Uh, who is it for and what is it used for? Sure. Paratransit is a service that we have. It's an ADA-required service that we have that basically people that, due to whatever uh, disability they might have, um, that makes them unable to use our fixed route buses, that we provide a door-to-door van type of service that will pick you up. It's a shared ride service, but this service will um, help those that might not be able to use our fixed route service so that everyone is covered in Metro will provide transportation for everybody despite whatever their abilities might be. And this sort of comes in the form of uh, vans or sort of like uh, taxis then? No, they're, well, they're vans and um, they're taxis for those that may not need special um, accommodations like a special uh, lift equipped vehicle um, so that we do utilize um, we do utilize, currently we use Badger Bus and Transit Solutions, and what is happening tonight is that we are um, re-upping the contract with those two vendors, and then there is another new provider that uh, that may come on in January, depending on tonight's, um, you know, if the Finance Committee does vote on that. So um, basically, tonight is just bringing on vendors to provide this service for us. And I should mention that the service is a little different than Metro service in terms of it is something that you have to book the day before at 4.30. And to be eligible for the service, you have to um, fill out an application with us, and then you have to come on to Metro for an in-person assessment. And what that is is you will talk with Metro staff about what your abilities are, and um, and and we review all these things with you, review documentation from your uh, physician, and then we make a determination on whether you'd be eligible for paratransit. And to do that in-person assessment, we actually, um, we will come pick you up if you're in our current service area. We'll pick you up with a Metro paratransit provider, and then we will give you a ride home too so that uh, it, we won't put the transportation uh, requirement on you to get here for that assessment. And now you mentioned it there before, you know, today's news is that the the city's finance committee is discussing uh, a new resolution to keep on two of the uh, companies that are involved in this Badger Bus and Transit Solutions and then also bring in a third one, uh, Quality yep. Transit. So so tell me a little bit about that and, and why you're bringing in a, a third provider into this program. Um, it's just that there's different – It's um, we've had up to four in the past, so it's just that we have um, these – companies, these vendors, these partners of ours, they have, they provide service, they have other contracts that they have to provide service for so that they are, um, we just get um, the vendors that we can so that there is enough capacity on our service and then they are still able to serve their other business needs. So it's, there's no real capacity issues that we're worried to, we're just making sure that there's enough, um, we have enough service for them to conduct their business and for us to get all the rides that we need to schedule. And so now while these are private companies, uh, the the city foots most of the bill for these rides. Is that sort of correct there? How, do, how does the payment work? Yeah, it's um, 
Yeah, Metro does, uh, you know, that's paid for out of local, state, and federal dollars, just like just like um, our fixed route service. There is a fare to ride. It is uh, $325 per ride, so per one-way ride. So then that is what the obligation of uh, for the riders. If you have to pay 325 you can buy tickets and you can pay cash in the vehicle. And now this this may seem a bit like an obvious question, but why bring in these these private companies to provide the paratransit instead of uh, you know having having city employees do it themselves like they do with the the bus service? We had uh, city workers doing that for us in the past. We had uh, drivers, but it it, it is a, a a bigger expense for us to maintain those vehicles and house those vehicles, and we actually just didn't have the ability to do that uh, any longer. So we just went out and um, started just doing a complete contracted service. We are moving forward with uh, redesigned uh, routes coming up, and we got the bus rapid transit. So we are focusing all of our drivers that we have, we're going to focus them on the uh, fixed route service, and then we contract out for paratransit. And so now another thing that you uh, mentioned there, bus rapid transit, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, one of the biggest mm-hmm. projects uh, looking uh, throughout the city at the moment, uh, and that's going to be a major overhaul of the city's transit network uh, that'll make uh, bus service easier and faster for uh, most people. But for one one concern that was brought up with that plan was, was how it's going to affect disabled folks here in Madison. So so with with BRT coming up just around the corner now, how how is paratransit planning to adapt to help people who maybe now are a little bit farther away from a bus stop than they were before? Do you anticipate having uh, an increase in service once BRT is up and running? We um, we are going to be able to accommodate it. I don't know if we'll have an increase in service or not, but um, basically we are not. As we do this redesign, we are not constricting any pockets of eligibility, so everybody that um, is riding today will still be able to ride once we do the redesign. So we're not we're not concerned about that. Um, let's see. I do have a note on that. Some of there are some neighborhoods that may gain um, all day paratransit service. So actually, if anything, there will be some neighborhoods that will get paratransit service, and then we are looking at moving. Um, Sun Prairie and Monona are looking at possibly uh, contracting service with us. So if they do sign on board with us, then we will be providing paratransit in those areas as well. So I would say, if anything, we are going to have slightly more paratransit service. We are not planning on constricting service for any of our riders. And and now another thing that was just in the news over the weekend was that uh, Madison Green Cab, one of uh, Madison's taxi companies, uh, has has ceased operations here in the Madison area. Now, for the last few months, uh, they have been doing mostly uh, non-emergency medical transportation uh, for folks around the city. So I I, I sort of want to know: do you do you see that as affecting? Uh, or you know, having any sort of effect on uh, paratransit here in Madison is that is that something that you guys uh, cover in any way? No, that isn't uh, anything that I would think would affect us at all. Um, that's an interesting question, but that is is completely separate from us, and I don't see that as something that would affect us either way. To be honest, at this point. Well, Mick, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us? Sure. Just if anyone has any more, I mean, I know we just did a, a few minute interview, but if people have any in depth uh, questions about paratransit, please have them give us a call. If we can answer those for them uh, easy. Six zero eight two six six four four six six. 
Otherwise, please send us an email at mymetrobus at cityofmadison.com, and we'd be glad to answer all those questions. All right, I've been talking with Mick Rush with the city's Metro Department uh, about the Madison Paratransit and uh, sort of what the future of the program looks like. Mick, thank you so much for talking with me here today. My pleasure. Thanks, Nate. The time now is 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, which means that Forward Lookout host Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings to come in Madison and Dane County. This week, Brenda and Dylan take a look at the shortened week of local meetings as the Finance Committee cleans up after Budget Week and the Transportation Committee gets ready for BRT. It's Monday, and that means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. How are you, Brenda? Doing good. Had a good weekend. (laughs) Yeah, long weekend. Pretty nice. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and all our listeners at home did, too. Let's get right into it, though. Shorter, Kind of a shortened week. It's one of those fifth weeks after Thanksgiving, but still some important meetings, and we'll start with Dane County. And at, uh, well, earlier today, we had the Community Development Block Commission, and they, what did they do? It seems like that was an important meeting today. Yeah, they were looking at their 2023 um, scoring spreadsheet. Um, So they got a bunch of applications. I'm pretty sure they heard hearings in the last few weeks, and they are looking at uh, which programs are going to make it and get funded and which ones may not. So we had a meeting of the Specialized Transportation Commission. I don't know if I've ever heard of that one. Uh, That met at five today, so that's maybe still in progress. There's a public hearing. And there's also one at 515 on Wednesday. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. The Specialized Transportation Commission um, is mostly elderly and disabled transportation assistance that the county has. And so they're having a public, they had a public hearing tonight um, to hear, you know, what the concerns and needs were of the of the people who actually use the services. And then on Wednesday night, they will be meeting again and they will be um, approving the program grant application for 2023. And then they're also going to get a presentation on work in wheels. And we'll go now to Thursday. Man, really not, you're right, not too much, but we yeah. have a meeting of the Dane County uh, Broadband Task Force. That's December 1st. So that looks like just uh, an update on a position, not much. Right, yep. They're getting an update on uh, the coordinator position. Um, and then they are also getting an update on the like a progress report on how things are going, uh, getting broadband plans out to uh, people out in Dane County. With that, well, let's move on to the city of Madison. And they have um, a finance committee meeting, which is at 4.30. They just wrapped up their budget. So uh, a lot of, looks like just a lot of cleanup, but man, there's a lot of it. They do. I think there's a lot of stuff that kind of got shoved aside during the budget process. And now uh, they're getting back to some of their regular business. So I think it's piled up a little bit, um, but they are um, the director of human resources, as well as the transit chief operating officer. They'll be approving five-year contracts for each of those folks. Um, there's lots of affordable housing programs that are getting funded. Um, and I, on my blog, you'll see that there's a bunch of non-competitive and sole source contracts, which means they don't really go out for a competition. They just pick somebody they're going to purchase things from. And, and it's not small amounts of money. It's, you know, anywhere from a hundred to half a million dollars. So a hundred thousand to a half a million. Um, there is the Overture Center Foundation contract is going to be up before them. And then also, um, they had, 
um, some more funding from various places. The community development division seems to be very busy this time of year. Um, and then they are have a $2.35 million TIF loan um, to go to WHPC acquisitions. And then a few other things that they have, the urban forestry special charge, as well as the resource recovery special charge. So those are some of the taxes that we see that are not called taxes, but they're, they're fees that we get with our various water bills and, and other bills. And then finally, um, they will be doing their annual sort of budget transfers to make sure everything balances out at the end. And then they'll be discussing about their uh, meeting format for 2023. Okay, and let's see here. We got the uh, we got to spice this up, Brenda. I know. Uh, every everyone they're just like well, let's let's hear a report about what we did this year. Um, but that's okay. Which I guess we just you can't pick this stuff up. But uh, it looks like on Tuesday at four forty five, the Joint Campus Area Committee is going through a, a ton of projects. They're just getting updates on them. So if you live in the campus area, that might be a good one to check into. Yeah, especially if you're interested in the 415 North Lake Street project. Um, they have that on their our agenda. The plan commission has asked them for a recommendation. And then they do have just a ton of projects, at, mostly at the UW and UW Health projects. City of Madison has a few over on Orchard Street, State Street, West Johnson. And um, they'll be talking about the Madison Metro Network redesign. Um, as well as transit-oriented development overlay zoning district. So it's overlaying with transportation. Yeah. Makes sense. 4.30, Wednesday, the Urban Design Commission. And that's a virtual meeting like pretty much all the meetings we've been talking about. So Urban Design Commission um, does have some projects that uh, they are checking out. They do. They'll also have that North Lake Street project on their agenda as well. And they also are making a recommendation to the Plan Commission. And then there's some other projects. There's one at 3.30 West Mifflin. 1800 to 1900 Pancritz Street, uh, 3841 East Washington, and then out on Ross Street, there's a couple um, interesting, I, I, it made me look twice, it says 207 Ross Street, lot number one and lot number two, and they're doing a CSM, um, but the Alder has requested that the Urban Design Commission take a look at it, so that's a little unusual, um, and then they have two more projects, one at 804 Felon Road and 6604 Odana Road. And if an alder requests that, is it? Uh, how does that usually go? Is it to uh, to get them to possibly reject it or to revise it? Or um, <laughs> it depends upon the alder and what they're trying to accomplish. That might be a good safe assumption, um, but it also may just be that they want to make sure that when when the rest of the alders vote, you know, maybe they think the vote's going to be close, and so they want to make sure that urban design is behind it. That could be another interpretation of that, um, but you never know. <laughs> Well, Wednesday at five o'clock, we have the Vending Oversight Committee, and they're um, approving all the the mall concourse vending maps. So I'm sure a lot of food cart operators will be tuning into that one. Yep, they're going to be approving the um, map for the mall concourse for 2023 and 2024. They also are looking at the food cart review scores, and looks like at least one person is going to be appealing their score. Um, and then they will be talking about their meeting locations and the late, late night vending program. Um, and what they're going to do for the 2023 and 2024 vending season. Wednesday at 5 o'clock, we have the Transportation Commission, and, and they are uh, going ahead and looks like giving final approval to some big changes at Madison Metro. So hopefully some feedback that was given by the community um, gets addressed, but the, this is when we'll find out, right? Yep. Um, yeah, so this is a not they're not going to be taking any public input. It's just going to be discussion and deliberation by the committee members only. Um, and so they want to make sure that everybody knows they will not be taking additional testimony um, and they'll be making their final decision 
they'll also then be looking at um, the how how they're going to implement this in the summer of 2023. And then they're looking at the transportation demand management program ordinance that is, they're looking at passing and then approving the transportation demand management program. And those are the programs where mostly employers are trying to get employees to drive less to work. So some some versions of that would be the bus pass programs at UW Health and other other hospitals and at the UW itself. All right. Well, we'll we'll wrap it up with the meeting of the Common Council Executive Committee. And they don't have too much business, but one of which is uh, trying to stagger all their terms. So that's kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I actually kind of think it's a good idea. Um, it would make it so that uh, all 20 alders could possibly turn over all at once. Um, I, I think that's a little bit hard when you get a whole bunch of new alders and, and it you know takes a little readjusting when that, when that switch happens. Um, so they'll be taking a look at that. And then they're also... Um, looking at their code of conduct, as well as elder onboarding and training. Um, so looking at, you know, getting new elders in the spring and, and what they need to do to, to work on that. And how to work well together. Like they're like any group they need. They're always working to work well together. Yep. <laughs> but I've you know so what that's like, right? Of that tried to happen and it really doesn't really ever work, but good luck to them. I hope they make it this time. <laughs> We all do. All right. Uh, Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. If you want to see what else is happening this week in local government, make sure to check out ForwardLookout.com. Thank you again, Brenda, for previewing this week in local government. All right. Thanks, Dylan. Yesterday was the anniversary of the assassination of Harvey Milk, one of the nation's first openly gay elected officials. Much has changed, but as the recent mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs reminds us, much remains to be done. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Yesterday, November 27th, was the anniversary of the assassination of San Francisco Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor George Moscone in 1978. Harvey was the first openly gay LGBTQ plus elected politician in California and one of the first in the nation. Today, there are an estimated 1,043, including Madison's mayor, two city council members, our congressperson, and one of our U.S. Senators. Harvey Milk was born in 1930 and raised in Long Island. He served three years in the Navy but got a dishonorable discharge in 1955 for suspicion of being gay. Milk worked on Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign for president, but later was influenced by the 60s counterculture. By 1971, he was an enthusiastic protester on Christopher Street in New York. He moved to San Francisco in 1972 and opened a camera store, on Castro Street in 1973. Milk ran energetic, liberal, grassroots campaigns for San Francisco Supervisor in 1973 and 1975, but did not win. In 1976, he lost a close race for the California State Assembly. By 1977, San Francisco elections changed from at-large to a district system. Milk ran in the Castro District as a militant gay man on a reform slate against 16 other candidates, eight of whom were gay. Milk had name recognition, an experienced campaign network, and coalitions with labor and the community. This time, he won. LGBTQ plus people were a quarter of the city's voting population. With Milk as the first openly gay supervisor, 
Other supervisor firsts in this election included a single mother, a Chinese-American, and an African-American woman. Melk served less than a year, but in this time opposed large corporations and real estate developers. He got an ordinance passed against discrimination of the LGBTQ plus community in housing and employment. He helped defeat the state's Proposition 6, which would have required firing of any public school employee who supported gay rights. On November 27th, Harvey Melk and George Moscone were shot dead by Dan White, a former policeman and firefighter, using his police-issued gun. Less than a month before, Dan White had quit as supervisor, but was now trying to get reappointed to his supervisor's seat by Mayor Moscone, who refused. The police union put heavy pressure on White. They needed him on the board to break a tie over a federal consent decree that would accelerate the integration of the police, a major step toward limiting police abuse of people of color and the LGBTQ plus people. White also blamed Harvey, a major supporter of police reform, for Moscone's refusal to appoint White to his old job. Six months after the assassinations, Dan White was convicted of only voluntary manslaughter. Upon hearing the verdict, 5,000 gathered on Castro Street. The angry crowd marched on City Hall in what became known as the White Knight Riot. Harvey's student aide and friend, Cleve Jones, tried to calm the crowd which broke glass windows. 24 friends of Harvey tried to block the crowd from the doors. Police appeared and started to beat up everyone. The protesters retreated to Castro Street, and the police followed, breaking glass and heads at the popular Elephant Walk Bar. Dozens of cops began to beat any gays they saw in the street. Finally, the police chief arrived and ordered the cops out of the Castro. In the end, at least 61 police and 100 LGBTQ plus people were hospitalized. Twelve police cars were burned and property damage was estimated at $300,000. LGBTQ people had been pushed too far and fought back. The next day, the city's LGBTQ leaders assembled before a meeting with the mayor, Supervisor Harry Britt, Harvey's successor, and other militants made clear no one would apologize for the riot. Harvey's party would go on as planned, the new mayor, Diane Feinstein, reluctantly agreed to keep the cops out of Castro. That night at the party, the speakers were instructed not to apologize. No one did. As Harry Britt explained to reporters, Harvey Milk's supporters have nothing to apologize for. Now the society is going to have to deal with us, not as nice little fairies who have hairdressing salons, but as people capable of violence. We're not going to put up with Dan White's anymore. The recent murder of the LGBTQ people and allies at a Colorado LGBTQ plus friendly bar shows we need all elected officials, not just the thousand plus identified LGBTQ plus people, to push for comprehensive gun control now. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. Around one year ago, the city of Madison launched their new CARES program, sending paramedics and crisis workers to certain 911 calls in place of police officers. It's been one year since the program launched, and the program has now issued their first annual report. To talk about that report, Shea Steadman, Assistant Chief of Medical Affairs for the Madison Fire Department and head of CARES program, spoke with Brian Standing on today's 8 o'clock buzz to find out how the first year went and where they still see room for growth. 
So the annual report states that over the past year, CARES responded to 57% of the mental health-related calls that came into the 911 center. What happened to the other 43%? Would those have been police calls instead? Yep, those would have been police calls. And and what do you have an idea of what uh, percentage if if you were fully staffed and if you were a twenty four hour seven day a week operation do you have a sense as to what percentage uh, of those mental health related calls you could cover? Well, it is again as long as they fall into that category of being nonviolent behavioral health calls, you know, it, it, it seemingly you, you could say well we would be able to catch almost all of them, but but the rub with nine one one is that. You know, we, we, I'll give you an example. We have nine ambulances, 911 ambulances in the city of Madison. There are times where all nine ambulances are busy on calls because of a surge of calls. And then we get help from the surrounding communities. With CARES, there's not really a backup other than law enforcement. So if we had, let's say we had three or four teams on the street at a given time, there could possibly be four behavioral health emergency calls going on at that time. And so the fifth one would need to go to law enforcement. So it's, it's, it's never a situation where you can say we could always respond to 100% of everything. But certainly having more teams available on the street allows you to capture a higher percentage. And so over the course of 2022, uh, the annual report indicates there were 935 mental health calls uh, that CARES responded to. How were those calls resolved? So the... Um, the resolution really comes in a number of ways. Um, about 14% of those calls, and this was a surprise to us, were handled by phone contact only. These were people that were either calling for resources for a loved one or a family member, or they were somebody in, uh, in a behavioral health emergency that didn't actually want to see anybody. And so we were able to resolve it over the phone, um, point them towards resources or whatever else it is without actually even coming face to face with the person. Um, about um, 50% or a little over 50% of the calls really get just kind of taken care of on scene um, with interventions on scene. About 30% of the calls actually have the person being transported somewhere to a facility to get help. Um, the the thing that was positive for us was that only 3% of the calls that CARES responded to needed to have an ambulance come in to take the person and another 3% that um, had to have police come in to take over for a protective custody issue. And so when we know that we're kind of alleviating some of the systemic pressure on the paramedics and the police department, um, that, that we know that we're helping the system as well. But most importantly, we believe that we're you know, providing the right intervention at the right time for somebody having a significant behavioral health crisis. Now, you mentioned uh, welfare checks and uh, how it, it serves the, uh, the people who are in need of a welfare check to have someone who's perhaps not a police officer arriving at their door. The annual report says that you responded to about 8% of those welfare checks. What, why do you think that number was low and what would need to happen to have CARES teams available to respond to more of those types of situations? Well, um, I, I can't tell you exactly why I think they were low other than the fact that, you know, if the team isn't available or they're not in service, they obviously can't go on the call. Um, but there are some welfare checks where, um, you know, th- there um, could be an element of danger. So you, you could be doing a welfare check on somebody you know, that is known to have um, violent behavior in their past and they have a gun at the house. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, variables that get put into these calls. So it's difficult for me to say exactly 
But, you know, all I can say is that certainly having, you know, more resources on the street like CARES will allow us to go to more calls. And you mentioned uh, violent issues. Are there other types of calls that CARES will not respond to? Well, if the person has a coexisting, you know, medical emergency as well, so if they're having a behavioral health problem, but they've also been injured, right, we're going to send paramedics to that to, to take care of the uh, of the significant injury first. Um, but other than violence or a significant medical or traumatic emergency, um, CARES should be able to, to manage most of them as long as it's a behavioral health call in nature. When you're looking at expanding a program like this, I mean, that obviously there's uh, you know financial resources involved. This program will be competing with other programs, including the police department, other fire department priorities, other public safety priorities. If as you start talking to city council members or the mayor or other department, how do you argue about the cost effectiveness of, of this program? Is, is this a cost effective? effective program in your mind? You know, that that's a great question. And, and, you know, being so, so I'm an assistant fire chief. Um, I'm not politically appointed um, and I'm certainly not a data person. So I rely on a lot of other folks around me to help me with that evaluation process and kind of what is really the cost benefit. Um, for me, all I, all I understand is that we're providing a better service to the citizens of Madison and that, and, and I will keep striving to do that with our public health partners um, and, you know, working with the city council, they'll, they'll all determine whether or not they believe it's cost effective or not. Um, you know, I, I certainly believe it. You know, we, we don't charge for this service um, and, you know, paramedics and crisis workers are, um, you know, we're trying to pay them well because it's a difficult job to do. Um, but there's also so many other costs involved, you know, vehicles and equipment and, and the structural support around these teams as far as supervision and just making sure that we're doing the right thing. So, um, you know, we, we just report out everything that we're doing and we let the folks that have the money decide whether or not it's worth it or not. But I mean, I, I certainly advocate for it. I'm very passionate about it. And I think it's a service that's, that's well needed in just about every city. That was Shea Stedman, Assistant Chief of Medical Affairs with the Madison Fire Department and head of the CARES program, talking with Brian Standing on this morning's 8 o'clock buzz about the first year-end report for the CARES program. That was just a portion of their full conversation, which you can find in full on wortfm.org. It's Monday, which means it's time for two new movie reviews. Feature contributor Harry Richardson starts with 3,000 Years of Longing, a great visual treat and a thoughtful film. Then we go to Spirited, a musical comedy update of The Christmas Carol from the ghost's point of view. So what would you wish for? What is your heart's desire? I do have a question. What does one do with three wishes? You'll see. That was a clip from the trailer for the strikingly filmed 3,000 Years of Longing, directed by George Miller. Miller co-wrote the screenplay with August Gore. It's based on a story by A.S. Byant, titled The Djinn in the Nightingale's High. Miller is probably best known for his work in the Mad Max dystopian science fiction series. This movie, with some beautiful exotic sections and action scenes, is mostly about the interaction between Alethea Binney, Tilda Swinton, and the Djinn, the always compelling Idris Elba. Alethea is an academic, solitary figure contend with her life. She's a storyteller, a self-described narratologist. She's intrigued when at a conference in Istanbul, she finds a beautiful glass bobble and accidentally releases the mysterious djinn inside. There are several problems. First, 
she doesn't believe he's real, she has no wishes, and she knows all the pitfalls of making any wish. The djinn is incredulous. He has traveled through thousands of years, most of them stuck in a bottle, endured three glorious but tragic encounters with women and their wishes, only to find the only woman who has no wishes at all. To persuade her to trust him, make her wishes, and get himself released permanently from the bottle, he tells his story, how he was entrapped, loses, and returned to the bottle each time. First, and most incredibly, he starts with the Queen of Sheba, Amito Ligam. The jinn is immortal and gives great pleasure to the queen, but she desires Solomon when he comes to her court. Alethea says no, all the accounts say the queen came to Solomon, but the jinn says no, I was there, believe me, he came to her. The other tales are equally elaborate, meetings with a slave girl, Isi Yoksel, and an unhappy spouse, Barku Golkundor. Alethea becomes entranced by his stories and eventually makes her first surprising wish. The main draw of the film is the interaction between Swinton and Elba. Disappointingly, it ignores the thorny question of a white woman controlling a black man's fate. All in all, a well-done, beautifully made film. See it on a big screen if you can. It's out on DVD and available at your friendly neighborhood DVD store. It's well worth checking out. Up next, a new holiday film on the small screen. I'm your ghost of Christmas present. La 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 la! I'm not watching your dramatic reencrapment. Hey, I'm haunting you. You can't just run away from me when I'm haunting you. Hello. We're that was Glip from the trailer for a fun new holiday musical, comedy, written and directed by Sean Anders. Anders' co-writer is John Morris. Anders has done a fine job here with a modern take on A Christmas Carol. He has assembled a solid cast with good performances all around. The movie especially benefits from the chemistry of its two leads, Will Ferrell as the ghost of Christmas Present and Ryan Reynolds as Clinton Briggs, an irredeemable Wall Street spin doctor who is so ethically challenged he tells his young niece to go negative on her grade school challenger for class president. His opposition researcher is Kimberly, the always great Octavia Spencer, who has second thoughts about her job. Christmas Present sees Clint as the ultimate challenge. He even threatens his boss, Patrick Page, that he will retire if he doesn't let the crew give Clint the old Christmas Eve visit of the ghosts of Christmas Present Past a funny and touching Sunita Moni from the comedy sci-fi Save Yourselves and a frustrated yet-to-come Tracy Morgan. The movie reveals a whole company of people behind the scenes make that Christmas Eve scenario. One of the show's fun conceits is that anyone can break into song over almost anything. The crew's boss only gives in to Christmas presents threat to avoid yet another song. Farrell and Reynolds do a few convincing numbers themselves, leading the best one, a hilarious good afternoon, with a big cast and several smaller scenes with just the two of them. The movie even gives us a great song and dance number near the end, and hints at a reprise, and that would be okay. An enjoyable film, it just started playing on Apple+. Plus. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter was Antonio Barreras Lozano. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Brenda Conkle and Dylan Brogan, and Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a good night.